to the Skinny for Friday, October 20th. I'm Mitch Perry, senior reporter for the Florida Phoenix, joined by my colleague, journalist Ben Montgomery. Good morning, Ben. Hey, good morning, Mitch. How are you? Great. Great to be here. And uh, folks, we're just listening. I, I want to tell you that uh, very stimulating conversation that we just followed. I saw somebody send us a text message saying we, the, the conversation could continue, should continue on this uh, hour. Uh, the gentlemen are left the building, so we can't do it now. Perhaps we can in a future broadcast because that was absolutely uh, good stuff between Jonathan and Ahmed. No, we're going to talk local uh, government, local politics here, actually. Um, we're actually going to talk later in the hour with a former Tampa Bay Times journalist who has penned a new memoir and talks about a new life after leaving the journalism world. But first, we're going to talk Pinellas County government and politics and things like the Tampa Bay Race Stadium and also uh, beach renourishment. We're going to talk about that with Janet Long, the County Commission Chairwoman of the Pinellas County Commission. Commissioner Long, great to see you here in studio. Thank you, Mitch. It's lovely to be here again. All right. All right. So good to see you. So, all right, let's begin with, uh, let's talk about this, this Ray Stadium thing. And, and we talked about this last month or when the Rays had their big press conference. And we did have St. Pete City Council member Richie Floyd on right afterwards. He's probably been the biggest critic uh, so far of any government <laughs> official I've heard from. And certainly the city's responsibility in the county is a little bit different. I know they both have a lot at stake in terms of public financing here. Um, as people know, this uh, proposed $1.3 billion stadium, which would be built right next to the current Tropicana Field. We should say, I saw you there at the news conference. You were the top cheerleader in there with your in your raised jersey. Now, did you own that before the uh, the press conference? Or was- yes, I did. Okay, okay. <laughs> didn't know. All right, and the hat. Uh, right. So, so I've heard you say this, and I think you said this even last week when the county commission actually met for the first time to discuss this. Uh, that it's a quote win win. So again, just to remind our listeners, there is a lot of public. Uh, money here uh, being proposed with the county um, was at um, $312 million. The city is about roughly $288 million. Now, the money coming from the county is tourist development money. Correct. Yeah. And so and now $25 million of it will actually come back to you within 25 years. I heard last week when you're having discussing this with uh, staffers at the commission meeting. Um, so, okay, so let's talk about this because um, this is being funded through the bed tax or like I said, the tourist development tax. Your colleague, Charlie Justice, recently said um, that, quote, we're in a much better financial situation with the tourist development fund than maybe we thought a few months ago. Is What's changed? Well, because the projections are for this year that we will take in over $100 million in the bed tax, which is the largest amount of money that we've ever had in that fund. And I think it's important, Mitch, to remind our listeners that not one penny of property taxes are going into this stadium. Not one penny. It's all being funded from the county's portion through the bed tax, which I want to remind everyone is paid for by the number of tourists that are staying in our hotels and in our uh, vacation rentals and that don't live here. Right. And that's our way of ensuring that their burden on our infrastructure is somewhat taken care of by the money they're giving back. And this bed tax traditionally goes to, uh, what else does it go to? Well, beach renourishment, right, which we'll get into in a minute. Correct. Um, uh, things like the Dolly Museum? Yes. What else? Um, a lot of the museums okay. and throughout the county are helped fund 
funded through our bed tax. And it's also important that your listeners know that that bed tax money, you know, people say, well, we have so many other needs. Why don't you fund this? Why don't you fund that? And so the reason is, is because those dollars are highly restricted and they are restricted by the state government. So we cannot just take that money and reappropriate it, for example, to the general fund Mm -hmm. and pay for some other piece of infrastructure. It has to be strictly tied to heads and beds. Right. Uh, The infamous phrase. uh, I I remember Mayor Bill Foster, St. Petersburg, was using that uh, years ago. So... Right, so you the the burden is is and again we're not let's not even talk too much about the city's uh, responsibility because you don't represent the city here you represent the county. Well, <laughs> and in terms of the whole project, you know this is supposed to be complete a six and a half billion dollar twenty year redevelopment project, the largest mixed use development in the Tampa Bay's region history, regional history, twelve hundred units of affordable and workforce housing and one point four million square feet of office space. Uh, retail, hotel rooms. Um, there is going to be uh, room for the Carter G. Woodson African American Museum. Um, so, does some of this money is that going to that, or is this strictly the construction of the stadium? The only piece of the project, and it's a very, it's the largest economic development project that the county has ever embarked on. The only piece of it that the county is picking up is the stadium. Okay, yeah. Which for us is anticipated to generate $665 million a year back to us in in uh, county sales taxes. And we'll, of course, wait and see about that because uh, when it comes to return on investment, historically, it sometimes is not uh, what it's cracked up to be. Yeah, but remember, it is much more than a sports stadium. This new entity is built with the idea in mind that it will truly become a destination and have a lot more uses 365 days of the year. It's being uh, built specifically to accommodate whole plethora of other uses. Again, we're, just spe- we're speaking with Pinellas County Commission Chair Janet Long here on The Skinny. Uh, and let's talk about, you know, I got got to mention this, and that is that, of course, the Rays uh, did had a great season, won 99 games, hosted a, a couple of wild card games uh, a few weeks ago, and they had very disappointing uh, crowds there. The first crowd at 19,000 was said to be the lowest for a baseball playoff game in a century. The next day was a little bit better, 20,000. Really embarrassing for the community. And folks, I, you know, I've seen this on social media. I'm sure you've heard something about this as well. Uh, there's some people who just don't, they don't like the idea that you're building the stadium in a place. And again, this is the Rays idea. This is them, right? And they're, they have a lot of, uh, skin in the game as well, obviously. Uh, cause there's a lot of folks, uh, who think that Major League Baseball, at least in Pinellas County is, and where the location is, is not going to work. And that this might be a shiny new toy that's going to be great for a few years and people will be very excited to go there. And then after that, that kind of fades away. You have to be concerned a little bit when you saw those, 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 uh, poor audiences last uh, last month, earlier this month? Well, it is a concern, but I have every confidence in the world that with this new stadium, it will become a worldwide destination. And because there are going to be so many other things to do in and around that area, I think it will help to pull people into the games, not to mention there's a fairly large and significant uh, housing, affordability housing 
property that's going to be allocated to that land. And that will also have people right there that can just walk across the street and go to a game. Can you tell us about the more holistic approach? Can you tell us about the more holistic approach to this? Like what will bring people to that site that's not just baseball? Curiosity, the fact that there'll be a lot of other kinds of entertainment that they can participate in. If you think about the stadium as it exists today, you go there, you go to a game, and then what? It's not like there Ferg's. are a lot of... Yeah, uh, Ferg's, exactly. Yeah, get, Ferg's. Get but, but, you know, there'll be nightclubs with entertainment. There'll be famous named people that will be coming and going from there. I, I think that the opportunities are boundless and that it, it, the way in which it's being developed are very creative. And I think even you skeptics will come over on the other side. And, you know, it isn't lost on me either that the number of new jobs that are going to be created there, how good economically that will be for our community. And so in a lot of different ways than exists right now, that stadium will be a catalyst for our community, I do believe. All right. And we're, mark the tape. Okay, Janet Wong, October 20th. <laughs> she's uh, she's guaranteeing this. But no, wait, but by the way, so many other things. We'll move on from this. Um, actually, you just mentioned housing for a second. Let's talk about that, which is still one of the biggest not still. I mean, it's absolutely a huge issue in, in the state of Florida and in the, this community, uh, affordable housing. Um, I just did a story a week ago for the Phoenix about uh, the, the Live Local Act. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah, a big $711 million uh, legislative proposal that was approved this year that changes the game uh, for developers to try to have more incentives, frankly, to build in maybe areas they don't traditionally build in. And I, the, the thrust of my story was, and, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts here, is that there's a lot of concern, there's a lot of issues on the local level. Uh, in South Florida, Doral, they've actually put a moratorium on development as they try to understand and work with this, work with developers. Um, in Pasco County, they're upset the fact that you can now build in industrial areas because they have a problem. Their their uh, job. Their uh, where they say it. How, um, work poor. Basically, they need. It's a bedroom community. People leave there to go work in Pinellas and Hillsborough. They want to bring more jobs there, and they say with this uh, this law now that people can build affordable housing in, in industrial areas, that's a problem. Um, what's going on in Pinellas when it comes to the Live Local Act? So I think you could expand that, Mitch, to live local. Play local, work local. And in regards to the stadium and the surrounding area, we're talking about 15,000 new jobs being created right within that development area. So, you know, it, th there are so many opportunities if we could just get out of our own way because there'll be... Food, food and beverages, right. lots of I'm restaurants, talking, talking, lots uh, of retail. Absolutely. But what about, but let's talk about housing if we could. Well, the housing, there's going to be uh, 31 annual new room nights in and around that area that we're going to provide for, oh gosh, just let me find the number, uh, brand new uh, apartment buildings and um, high rises as well as Townhomes. Well, we got a lot of high rises in St. Pete. That's for sure. Don't we? Don't we ever though? Yeah. But that's the way you build a community mm -hmm. by building density in, and then you have better public transportation options. And I know. Excuse me, Commissioner. And I know that uh, going back through was it. Um, 
I don't know if it was through uh, the community investment tax or or not. And I'm sorry, not that. But um, what's what is it you have there um, in terms of the, the county has been doing stuff. And I know and trying to address as all the local governments are affordable housing issues. Correct. Right. Right. Uh, anything on the, the what's anything the, late, the latest you can tell us about what you guys have done the commission there? Well, you know, we have. What is it, a thousand people a day that are continuing to move into Pinellas County? And quite frankly, you 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 would be hard pressed to build enough affordable housing in our county. There's there's just no available space. So what that requires is redevelopment, which is going on if you're paying attention, all over the county. And so we're doing all of those things that we can possibly think of to do to ensure that we are able to provide, that we are helping to create that density needed for good public transportation options, and that we're being thoughtful about our building and our permitting and, and, um, and how the buildings are being developed to ensure that they're safe and they meet the highest standards of quality building from the construction trades. Great. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, Mitch Perry with Ben Montgomery. We're talking to Pentelos County Commissioner Janet Wong. Uh, let's talk about beach renourishment. And I know that this is this is huge uh, because uh, some of those bed taxes do, do go to that. And, and you know, I love that, by, by the way, these, this excuse that people use about not going to the race games because, oh, they got to go across Tampa, the Howard Franklin, when we know that for the for the, the beaches, they're coming from around the country, around the world to go to Pinellas. And so people are driving across the Howard Franklin for that, to go to Treasure Island, Madeira Beach, what have you. So um, so this is very big. This is crucial economically for the county, Pinellas County. So a couple things. What is I know that you've actually, we've had this whole impasse with the Army Corps of Engineers. Years. It's a big issue the last year or so. Um, you actually went to Washington, right, back uh, in March, along with uh, Indian Rock Beach Mayor Cookie Kennedy, uh, Kelly Levy from the Public Works Department, uh, I think you're a government liaison, uh, to talk to the White House about this. So what's the latest when it comes to the Army Corps of Engineers pr- pr- providing the funding that you need to do beach renourishment in the county? We're not, <clears throat> excuse me, we're not looking for them to provide the funding. What we're looking to them for is is a release of the easements that they are requiring on some of the properties that are keeping us from doing the whole entire project. And if you think about it, it doesn't seem quite fair if you have five houses and you're developing and redeveloping and re-nourishing the beach in front of four houses or three houses, then you have to skip two of them and go around them to continue on because those two homes don't want to sign the easements. But what those homeowners are not realizing is they're not giving up possession of their property. What they're what they're authorizing is the ability for us to help protect their lives and their property by re-nourishing the beach right in front of them. So Quite frankly, I don't quite understand it. How many folks are we talking about here who are holding this all up? Oh, total, it's about 200, a little over 200. And, you know, we keep on talking. We keep on trying to communicate as well as with the Army Corps. And we we did when we had that public meeting and we had the head of the Army Corps down here, we did land on a a couple of words to change in the 
argument about the easements that we thought might better help to get folks to sign off on those easements. And so, you know, all we can do is all we can do to keep on trying. But the idea is it's about protecting life and property. That's all. And also right now you've got, you're doing work on Treasure Island Beach, right, with some emergency beach restoration following Hurricane Idalia and other storms. And this is being overseen by the Pinellas County Ecological Services. And you're asking people, we can make a little public service announcement right now, right, visitors, to stay off the dunes so the vegetation can have time to take root there. Correct. And I can can give you an up-to-date as of yesterday exactly where we are. We started our refurbishing project on Sunset Beach and Treasure Island, and that segment is nearly finished. Now that we're next moving to Paso Grill on St. Pete Beach, and then it'll be Bel Air Beach. And mobilization is now taking place at Upham Beach, which is on St. Pete Beach. Indian Rocks Beach is next, and we're also looking at Indian Shores, Reddington Shores, and Madeira Beach. We have already, this is as of yesterday, placed more than 100 tons of sand out there on the beach, on the beaches. And one day last week, it was pretty comical because there were 70 dump trucks going along down Gulf Boulevard full of sand and The big question I get so often is, where is all that sand coming from? Where are we getting all that sand? Yeah, where is it coming from? Well, we have three sand pits inland over by Haines City, over in that area of the state. And that's where we're getting it from. So we've spent $30 million thus far. And even though we've allocated the dollars for the stadium, we have already allocated dollars for the full renourishment of the beach. So we're not waiting for the easements or the Army Corps. We're just moving on. Good to hear that. Okay, again, 1124 <laughs> right now on WMNF. We got uh, Commissioner Long till about 1140 this morning. So if you'd like to uh, speak to the commissioner, the phones or lines are open, 813-239-9663. You can also send us an email at uh, w, uh, dj at wmnf.org. Uh, and so a couple other things we want to bring up with you, Commissioner um, One of the things now, you know, when we talk about Pinellas versus Hillsborough County, which we're talking about today, I guess I'm bringing it up right now, is, uh, you know, Hillsborough infamously to me, it has only, quote unquote, three cities. It's a huge area, but only three, the rest is all unincorporated. Pinellas is very different, obviously. It has, what, 24, 26? 24 municipalities. Right, right. And so I don't know if you saw this, uh, former Clearwater Mayor Frank Hibbard, uh, he basically says there's too many cities in Pinellas County. Uh, he wrote an op-ed, and then there was a thing on um, Fox 13. He talked about, he said, you go into these little towns that are literally a mile wide, and each one of them has a city hall. During these times when we have rampant inflation, this is one of the ways that elected officials can really make a difference for their constituents. Uh, the piece he wrote in the Times was Pinellas County needs fewer cities with fewer responsibilities. And he writes, travel through nearly any part of Pinellas County, and you'll see small towns with their own city halls, municipal service buildings, and other expensive duplicative infrastructure structure. What do you think about that? I totally 100% agree with him. Because if you think about the t- the tax dollars that are being siphoned out of the system, <clears throat> excuse me, every one of those little cities has a mayor. They have a city clerk. 
They have a county, they have a city attorney that represents them. They have a building and permitting department. There's so much duplication. And I know that in a lot of ways, the county has tried to coordinate taking over the technology piece because the little governments can't afford to keep up with the technology. So they outsource it to the county. A lot of them outsource their building departments to the county because they can't afford it. And those are tax dollars that people are paying. So they're paying for a city clerk for the little municipality. They're paying for all the county services laying over that. And is that really necessary? Not all of those little cities even have their own identity. If you go from, well, I don't want to pick on anyone. Right, I get it. Yeah, but but from one one of these communities to another, you don't even know you're in a different place. You don't know when you've crossed a city boundary. They don't have their own identity like Indian Rocks Beach or like Gulfport or Toppen Springs. I mean... You know when you're in Toppen right. Springs, everything is in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You, you do know Toppen Springs. It's, that's very distinct there. Yes. So that's, it's own that's what I mean. I mean, you know, and all of these little cities started up a long time ago because one person had an idea that he wanted to get something done. They couldn't get it done either by the county or the state. So, okay, let's let's develop, you know, turn ourselves into a city. I know when I was in the legislature, there was a big push to um, incorporate all of Tierra Verde. And a lot of those folks came to my office and I would say to them, be careful what you ask for. It's expensive and you are duplicating services that you're already receiving from the city of St. Petersburg. On top of that, there's a lot of infrastructure services that are being provided to you by Pinellas County government. And then you lay state government over that. And to that, I say to all my friends who are so all about small government, how does that even compute that you think that small government when you have three or four layers of duplication? Is there a way, not that I'm suggesting this, but again, just you know, for the argument's sake, of, of decoupling of a city going from, you know, and I don't want to mention one because I don't want to get the mayors upset at me or have you, but, you know. A city abolishing itself. Right, right. Of how, course how there begin? are ways to do it, and there are many different ways to do it. Let me just share with you that if you want to start a kerfluffle, start talking about any form of consolidation with the little cities. Do you know why? Because they all enjoy their little fiefdoms and their little slice of power. We're going to go to the phones right now. And actually, I see here uh, on the lines here that, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Commissioner, yeah, it's going to be all good. Okay. We've got somebody who wants to talk about consolidation here, actually. This is, uh, this is I think so, uh, uh, Bert. Hi, Bert. You're on WMNF. Yeah, hi. Good afternoon. And I just want to, what do you think about consolidating and creating a, a countywide fire department? Because that's a big struggle there. And, it, <laughs> you know, what do you think about that? And just think about this. All the training facilities, when they do their training, they're creating a toxic environment. What is the county doing about that? But consolidating uh, a county fire department that's a subject matter that has been discussed on many occasions since I have been in public office. And while I think it's an incredibly innovative and 
positive thing to do for the sake of our citizens. I can share with you that the same concerns that I spoke about when it comes to consolidating the cities rises right to the top of the food chain when you start talking about consolidating fire. Because now all those chiefs don't want to lose their titles and those deputy chiefs and the deputy deputy chief on all the duplication that goes on. Most importantly to the firefighters, which is what I always cared about, because I would say, well, who cares what it says on your engine or what it says on your uniform? You're still going to be able to say that you're, there are ways to do it so that you could still say on the side of the engine that it's the Seminole Fire Department. But just... um, you look no further if you want a really good example and a model for how to get that done in Pinellas County. Look at the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Gualteri has been an incredibly thoughtful leader. And one piece by one piece by one piece, he has managed to bring in all those very small municipal police departments that were spending millions. I know one of the cities was spending way over $2 million for their itty-bitty little police department when they could have 10 times the opportunity and the effect and the efficiencies by consolidating with the sheriff, and they eventually did. All right. So long long answer to a very complicated question. I do agree how, you know, nobody wants to give up their chief's job, but we, need, we, we really need to look into that for this county, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, how many aerial ladders do you need? You know, yeah. we, are, we are very fortunate. We've got a great EMS system. We've got a great dispatch system. You know, it's just that, you know, we need to consolidate. But the bigger thing about that is I'm concerned about uh, – these training facilities that are polluting and where there's firefighting foam and all that stuff, it's going into the ground. I think you should look into that, too. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Bert. Thanks for the call, Bert. Okay, Bert, let's go to Barry uh, on the phone here. Hi, Barry. You're on the air. Oh, thank you. And I, actually, I had two issues. One was the fire departments, and I agree with the last caller, because I think the best commissioner I've ever met in Pinellas County, uh, other than Jeannie Malkin, uh, we have our current interlocular uh, uh, commissioner, Along, we have what twenty-one different fire departments. The, pl- the fire unions would go for it, and she so distinctly said, "It's just the chiefs that don't want to lose." But the second issue I wanted to raise, that you talked about that, was Anna Polina Luna has been going full out trying to help us with the beach renourishment. Has there been an effort by the Democratic leaders in this county to get the president to intervene with the Army Corps? He has the pressure, the ability to, by executive order, fix this problem. How can we have put pressure on the president? Well, Mr. Edwards, thank you so much for calling in and for all those lovely comments that you made. I would like you to know that I spoke personally to President Biden when he was here uh, several months ago about the very subject matter of our... um, The beach beach renourishment. Beach renourishment and how critical that was And, and because of that, we have been able to start moving forward creatively on our own and um you know why the why the white house hasn't gotten further involved i'm really not sure that's above my pay grade 
Uh, by the way, he mentions Anna Paulina Luna, our, our representative of the Congress in Pinellas. Um, uh, do you interact with her often or at all? No, I met her one time, um, and she was absolutely lovely. I couldn't say any more any right. anything negative. Uh, but I, not only have I not interacted with her, but I never see her in in our in our county. Mm, yeah. So I'm okay. not. Okay, that doesn't sound so great with our congresswoman and the county commission chair. But thank you, Barry, for the phone call. Let's now go to Paul in Clearwater. Hi, Paul. Hi. Good morning. Good um, morning. Good morning. I love your uh, name. My son is named Paul. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I I read. I'm hoping I'm wrong, but. I read that the state legislature set aside $50 million to hand out $175,000 grants to private homeowners to fix their beaches. Um, I really, I, I, I don't think beaches are I, private I totally in Florida. I totally disagree with public funds going to private homeowners to nourish Paul, Paul, I'm going to ask you, though, like uh, this past session. I mean, I, I covered the session up there. I don't recall anything like that happening. Also, okay, well, is it not the case it, we it don't have private beaches? Information. All I know is spending public tax money. The vast majority of Floridians don't live on the beach and we shouldn't be spending their money to help private homeowners fix their beachfront property. I'm not aware of that uh, piece of legislation. I'm not in the Florida legislature anymore. And so you would need to take that up with one of our state representatives representatives representing us here locally. The reason the engineers didn't want to provide the money is because there were private homeowners that wanted their... Right. No, we talked about that a few moments ago. Yeah. Yeah, we know that. But... I don't know what you're talking well, about there. You're saying that they didn't provide that money. No, I'm not saying they did not. I'm telling you that I don't know anything about it, but I'm happy to look into it. And but pass, the legislature, okay. Pass the information over yeah, to Mitch. Yeah, I mean, right. We'll get back, absolutely. Because I, and maybe I something happened that I'm not aware of there. So, Paul, we appreciate the phone call. Okay, we've got a few minutes left. We only have a few minutes left with Commissioner Wong uh, because you've got to go. Um, Couple things though. Let's see here. This is your last year in office, basically, or will be in the next few months, right? You're not going to re- run for re- election, re-election in 2024. That's correct. Let me ask you this: Pinellas County has definitely shifted to the right politically. Uh, just in the last few years, uh, you had a very close call in your re-election against Larry Ahern a few years ago. Uh, it surprised a lot of people. Same thing with Charlie Justice. He really got through against Tammy Vasquez, who nobody really had ever heard of before, and. Um, if you ran again, I'm sure you'd feel confident because of your track record that you did win. But it is a different terrain now, right, politically, than it was a few years ago. The whole world is a different terrain today, Mitch. And I can tell you that every time I have ever run for office, people have said to me, I don't know why you're doing that. You're never going to win. You can't win. That's a Republican seat. And even when I ran for the county commission, I ran against a sitting Republican county commissioner. And guess what? I proved them all wrong and I did win. So I'm not saying that that's the same as what happened today. I certainly not am not a perfect person by any means, but I work really, really hard. And this might be heresy to say it, 
But I don't really give a damn if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I just care about helping people. And that is what local government is supposed to be about, right? I mean, it's like ideological. Um, and then basically, uh, well, you know, and you're not like, obviously, the, we, we see and hear the Pinellas County School Board. We see at Hillsborough County. School boards are a whole different world now in terms of the public re- comments and reaction. Do you get some of that these days at the county commission at all? Or? Oh, yeah. You know, there are people that think that we control everything. <laughs> I, sometimes I wish I could, but, um, yeah, we, we just write back or say that's not our arena school board. You'll have to call the school board. Right, right. Okay, I think we'll leave it there with Commissioner Janet Long. She, again, has been in office since, uh, well, since 2012 in the county commission. Previously, 20, 2006 to 2010, the state legislature. Uh, and I guess you'll, but again, you've got a long way to go. You've got a, a year, year in politics is a long time uh, in government, maybe not politics, uh, that you're doing right now. Uh, it is, he, but you know what, yeah. Mitch? I'm very proud of the term, term time I've served. If I add it all up, it's 52 years in public service when I finish in 2024. And I think it's important to know when to say when. And Do you think well, the president should be doing that? You're about the same age, roughly, a little bit younger than, and I, I hate to bring up age, but. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't care about bringing up age. I'm proud of the you're age 78, I am. right? Yes, I am. I'll okay. be 79 in November. So, Joe However, Bob, I'm yeah. still here and I'm still working oh, just yeah, as hard as I ever did. <laughs> Absolutely. You're what, robust as ever. What, can you tell us what's next? Can you tell us what's next for you? Yes, I'll be happy to. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it with great gusto because I have a beautiful family, uh, five grandchildren. We did lose our my oldest grandson several Sorry. months ago. And um, I want to spend the last chapter of my life with my family, dedicated to my grandkids. And I'm a great grandmother now. And so I want to, I want to have have my own life for just a little itty bit of it, God willing. He lets me live long enough to be able to enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, we're really thrilled to have you in, in studio here. Really appreciate it. County Commissioner, Pinellas County Commissioner Janet Long, our guest in studio here. We're going to make a quick transition here, and Ben's going to be back with Catherine uh, Smith. Snow, Snow Smith. So Smith, excuse me. Catherine So Smith coming up in just a moment here. Thanks again. You're listening to The Skinny here on WMNF 88.5. Hello. I'm Lilo with a community announcement. Florida Voices for Animals are presenting the 12th annual Tampa Bay Veg Fest on Saturday, November 4th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Perry Harvey Senior Park in downtown Tampa. This event includes renowned speakers, vegan food vendors, samples, cooking demos, a family fun zone, and live music. WMNF will have an outreach table as well. More info can be found at tampabayvegfest.com or on WMNF's community events page on WMNF.org. Thanks for listening. Mick Jagger turned 80, so WMNF is presenting a tribute to the Rolling Stones. After years of battling legal problems, drugs, and poor reviews, the greatest rock and roll band in the world was on the skids. They had something to prove, and that turned out to be one of their best albums ever, Some Girls. 
To celebrate the release of Some Girls, WMNF and Talk to Mark are going to recreate Some Girls in its entirety. To open the show, bands will play a variety of Stone songs, plus there will be a Mick Jagger impersonation contest. Join us at Skipper's Smokehouse, Saturday, November 4th, doors at 6, music at 7, tickets and info at WMNF.org or 813-238-8001. Raleigh native Catherine Snow-Smith has lived all over the South and has worked as a newspaper reporter, editor uh, at small-town papers and business journals, but uh, spent most of her career at the esteemed St. Petersburg Times, a former colleague of mine, which of course now known as the Tampa Bay Times. A few decades after graduating from UNC Chapel Hill with a degree in journalism, she's returned to her native North Carolina after her last, last child left the nest and her 24-year uh, marriage to former Times political editor and reporter Adam Smith ended. She has a new memoir coming soon, her second book, called Stepping on the Blender and Other Times Life Gets Messy. She writes with great vulnerability. I say this having read the book this morning and last night. Uh, with great vulnerability and humor about forging a new unexpected path. Um, she writes about parenting, dating, reporting, pranks, aging, loss, and launching uh, the next phase in life. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Tell us where that title uh, comes from. Uh, well, thank you, Ben, and uh, all of you all for having me. So the title, um, so so I still have my little bungalow in St. Petersburg that I love and I'm holding on for dear life with, but I rent that out and then go up to North Carolina in the fall and spring for the past two years. And um, I've been teaching as an adjunct and now I'm back in school. But anyway, so two years ago, I was, my car was packed and I was hitting up to, to drive up 95 um, and go to North Carolina. And I just gave the house one more look around, make sure it was ready for the renters. And I have these really cool glasses that somebody gave my parents as a wedding present in 1958. They're kind of frosted cocktail glasses. And with animal, uh, circus animal, ooh, I shouldn't say that, merry-go-round animals on them. Anyway, so I'm like, I'm going to put those over the refrigerator before I leave so the renters don't use them and possibly break them. So I pulled the chair over to the refrigerator, stood up on the chair, moved one glass at a time, and then I got the whole glass menagerie up there. And then in the doing so, I accidentally knocked my blender off the counter, but it didn't break. It just rattled around onto the floor. So I stepped down, and as I stepped off of that chair, my foot and all of my weight landed on the blade of the ninja. Oh, and so, yeah, so I fell onto the ground and just like, was like, you know, I give up. Here I am trying to do something different, like starting again on yet another new path. And I've just like totally got blood all over my kitchen. I can't walk. Anyway, so um, got cleaned up. A friend of mine who's a nurse, um, Deanne, and then another friend, Birchie, came over. They were like, okay, Catherine, you don't have to go to the ER. I just propped it up on my dashboard and drove up I-95 to start the new phase of life. Liquid stitches from... Well, oh, yes, I did get some liquid stitches <laughs> in uh, St. Mary's, Georgia, yeah. along the way. You write, uh, you write that you're the kind of person who still rushes out of the house occasionally uh, with a spoonful of peanut butter for breakfast. Is that, is that right? Uh, I mean, occasionally it would be like twice a week. Um, oh, so, so that's kind of the gist of it. I mean, there, there are times we stuff on the blender and it's just like small stuff that is kind of, you know, oh, can't believe this happened. I'm out of, you know, oatmeal. And then sometimes it's your whole life takes a, a tough turn, but it happens to everybody. And we step on the blender and then we just 
keep going. And so the, the book is a collection of stories, most of them mine, about small and big mishaps in life and humorous and sad and anyway, and then how you get through them and move on. You you uh, you made me laugh out loud, and I, I sent you a text about this this morning, but you were uh, on Broadway watching uh, a show uh, with your uh, grown children, and um, Hugh Jackman comes on stage. I uh, forget the name of the show. Which what was it? What oh, was the Music Man. It? Yeah, the Music Man. The music man. And Hugh Jackman. Yeah, I go for steps, all those edgy, edgy classics. <laughs> Hugh Jackman steps on stage, and and you say out loud, "There's Hugh Jackman." <laughs> which? Well, I mean, I I didn't say it that loudly. I said it to my kids. So right. that is about how kids are. You're, you know. It's called a parent should be seen but not heard. Right. So it's like, like there's Hugh Jackman, and they're just like, oh my god, mom, shut up, you know. So it's just like, <laughs> no matter what you do, you know, mom is often the 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 bad guy or the one who's embarrassing them, um, which is a pretty common theme. That's not that unusual. Original. There's more original stuff in the book besides. <laughs> This book reads like a collection of columns, uh, and, and one of them tells the sweet story of your daughter meeting Janet Reno. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, thank you, Ben. So, um, gosh, years ago, uh, I wish I had a... Uh, so when Janet Reno was running for governor, uh, originally against Bill McBride in the Democratic primary, uh, this might have been like, what would that been? Oh, two? I don't know. Um, anyway, um, my ex-husband, Adam, we were married at the time, was the political editor. And so he was covering, she was, Jane Arena was um, near St. Pete out at the beach and uh, making an appearance. And Olivia, my then kindergartner, had this class mascot, this little stuffed animal, kind of like the ver- a lot of families or schools do flat Stanley. Right. But you take this mascot around and it's like, oh, you spend a week showing, you know. And so I realized, I'm like, this was how parents bragged before we had social media. It's like, here's Flat Stanley, you know, in Vail. Here's Flat Stanley, you know, sitting behind Spike Lee at a Knicks game. Um, Or not Knicks, Lakers. (laughs) Anyway, so we got, you know, Flat, we got Petey the Peacock with um, an airplane pilot. And Olivia was perfectly satisfied with that. But Adam and I are like, no, we got to do something better to compete with all the other parents. So he called me. He goes, has Petey the Peacock ever met a former attorney general? And so so I'm like, no, he hasn't. So I was like, I threw, I was pregnant at the time with my third. So I put Charlotte and Wade in the car and um, we go out to the resort and um, there's a crowd of people and in walks Olivia with this little stuffed animal. And she was very nervous and anxious as anyone would be. TV cameras were there. And then she goes up to Janet Reno and Janet Reno just, I was like, Miss Reno, this is Olivia and she needs to, Get your pic. Could she talk to you and get her picture taken with you and this peacock? And then Janet Reno just is like, Olivia, did you know I grew up with peacocks all around my house? I mean, just like, you know, just as normal. And so, and Olivia's like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> like, I'd never heard. So she pulls Olivia, you know, into her lap and they just sit there and talk. And it was amazing. It went from like Olivia being terrified to Janet Reno just being like the sweetest lady you would have never. You know, she's got many sides to her. And this was, uh, this was, of course, after, after Waco. Uh, this was after yeah, Waco. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so. yeah. Um, and, you know, and obviously she was seen as, uh, you know, a ball buster, yeah. but she also, like many people, has a very soft side and a, and a very, she was genuine no matter what. So it just was this moment when 
I thought. And then, and then she ended up losing to Bill McBride, and then he lost to um, Jeb Bush. Right. But um, we always have this, like, Olivia, Olivia was there with Janet Reno talking about peacocks. Do you still have that photograph? Oh, yes. And in fact, when uh, Janet Reno died a few years ago, uh, my daughter, um, who works for Media Matters in Washington, um, she posted the picture on her account, you know, kind of, and I think Adam might have also um, a big shout out to, you know, a complicated woman who had a complicated story, but um, definitely was loved by many people. Mm. So that makes three generations, at least, uh, in the uh, news business. Uh, your father was a reporter and then editor-in-chief of the Raleigh Times, the afternoon paper in Raleigh, and then uh, continued to write a public interest column for the for the morning paper, the News and Observer, until he was 95. Yes. That yes. is a long every, career in newspapers. Every week. Every week. Um, yeah, he uh, he... So the afternoon papers, many of the older viewers know, uh, afternoon papers all kind of shut down around the country, I guess, in the like late 80s, early 90s. So the Raleigh Times printed its last edition. My dad wrote the headline, That's All Folks. Mm. Um, but anyway, so it printed, I think, the last edition in 88 and the, the morning paper. And his column was really popular and throughout East, from Raleigh East, through, so throughout about half of the state. A lot of people read it and um so they're like will you write the column because like i'll do it a couple more years so that was 88 and then he wrote it until i guess 2021 mm -hmm. uh he got to the point he could no longer i mean he was doing the mouse i mean he was using his finger scrolling on his laptop and i mean he learned so much technology but um he was just having trouble ultimately reading this the font on the email yeah. So he retired at age 95. Yeah, he wrote his last column at 95. And then he died at, at 97. So just just about a year ago. But um and and you he, got you got to know him in a in an interesting way, maybe a different way uh by by coming across some letters from World War II. Yes, and it was actually I, I really admire your speed reading, Ben, but it was actually his journal. Journal. Um journal is fine. So so after he died um you know, he'd always been like, when I die, there's a metal box under the TV cabinet. Uh, you know, that's got everything in it. So I went in there and there was um, underneath the metal box was this journal that like my mother had never even seen, this little leather journal. So he um, was drafted into World War II. He graduated high school in May and then um, I think went in January of 42. He grew up in the mountains in North Carolina, had never seen the Atlantic Ocean, never seen an ocean. And the first ocean he saw was the Pacific as he crossed it uh, to go serve in the um, Philippines. Anyway, so I found his journal with this uh, beautiful penmanship writing about the day to day, what it was like to be. Uh, he was in the Air Force uh, and it was it was very, I mean, we all, we've heard, obviously, we know that was the greatest generation and they did so much. But just the one thing that struck me is when they, so they ended up in New Guinea and he said, and they took them, I think they crossed the country in a train for seven days. And then I think they spent about, now I can't remember, maybe 30 days on the, on the, uh, carrier crossing the ocean mm -hmm. and they would have to stand guard you know like two, they got to go up on deck two hours a day mm -hmm. 
Um, anyway, so finally, they're like, we finally saw land. We were so excited. We thought we were all going to Australia, but it is a place we've never heard of called New Guinea. Mm. And I'm thinking, they were on the boat for 30 days. And nobody could bother to tell these men where they were going. <laughs> where they were headed. You know, it's just like, nope, you know, we're, they're just draftees and we what they don't need to know we don't tell them i mean they and then they worked something like four weeks straight before they got a day off the building the base um but then he also had this amazing and i just think he's this rare some like just you can tell him a fawning daughter but he he has this passage in there where he talks about seeing the sunrise on the the in the in the bay and and talking about it's a it's a ball of fire in the I'd like sky. To, I'd like to read that if that's okay. February, okay, sure. February fourth, February fourth, nineteen forty four. The sun arose from behind a nearby mountain. It was a crimson ball of fire, which turned the cloudless sky into a spectrum of colors. The tall leaves of the coconut palms seemed to be waxed, and the water in the bay shimmered in the early dawn, while the jungle birds awakened and began screaming and flying about. It almost reads like poetry. I mean, Ben, you make it sound beautiful. And this is a boy who was 18 years old. Nobody, he was the youngest of 15 children. Nobody had ever read a book to him in his life. He'd gone to public school in a one-room schoolhouse in Surrey County, North Carolina. And somehow he had the gift to write like that. Mm. I, I mean, before, and then he went to college on the GI Bill after the war. But it's just, when I read that, I always knew he was a, a gifted writer and columnist, but it's like, it was just somehow born into him. Mm. But thank you for sharing that. Thank you for for uh, letting us uh, read it. Um, you and I worked uh, uh, for the for the Tampa Bay Times, St. Petersburg Times, um, but I never made it uh, into the Pasco County Bureau. <laughs> but one name that continues to come up in conversation <gasps> with former Times reporters and others is Mike Moscardini. Yes. Tell us about Moscardini. Um, oh, I wish Jamal Fauci were on the line. <laughs> um, or many, so many people came out of... Um, so many people day. came out from his tutelage, and, and I'm thinking, you know, off the top of my head, a handful of editors at uh, The Times and other Florida plate papers, but also Thomas Lake, who's writing for CNN. I think Michael Cruz, who now writes for PolitiFact. Um, right, right. What was it about uh, Moscardini? That, he, he he was like, he was just your, well, I mean, and I actually haven't, there's so much material in Moscardini. There's an essay in my first book. I mean, he is just, I mean, a hard ass. I mean, he was so hard, but so driven about the news and getting the story right, but also so funny and ultimately underneath very concerned and caring about his his crew and and the reporters um but and he just had this wry sense of humor it's like on my first interview um i was all nervous and i thought i did really well and then he's like well let me just ask you one thing uh what do you think about the uh, fong Leibowitz situation and i'm like scanning 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 that i said the name's familiar but i have to say i i can't think of who it is right now and he's like, have you ever heard of a little movie called Animal House? And walked out of the door. So, I mean, he just like, he'd be so funny, but then intimidate the hell out of you. Um, no matter and, how much you worked, you write. Uh, if you'd been oh, yeah, on that was three right. shifts for 12 hours a day in a row, if you left before 6 p.m., 
his standard parting words were, well, thanks for stopping by. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yeah. Um, so, and then he'd have this, you know, he'd look out across the newsroom and say, Catherine or, you know, Jamal or Adam, what have you done today to make me look good in the eyes of my superiors? Right. Um, but to, for Mike to edit a story, I mean, I, I don't care if it was, you know, a page, whatever, the Pasco section, you know, I would, I covered, um, Port Ritchie, Newport Ritchie City Council. I mean, it could be Newport Ritchie City Council. It could be, you know, investigating organized crime. He went through every story and made it the strongest it could be. And, you know, and it just, it was such a great training ground. Um, and I just can't say enough about how, uh, yeah, but but yeah, that, that, I think the humor and and then his commitment to journalism and and just the people the stories the, the so many characters out of Pasco. I'll tell one more thing. So what the circus came to Pasco, um, and I think nothing had been in Pasco for years. This is before the Circuit City and all the and the Hooters came. Right. But um, so we had a sports reporter. Um, God, I was going to say Roger Moore. It's not Roger Moore from James Bond, but I can't anyway. Um, and he came in and he's like the circus is coming I, and they're like, do you want to cover it? He's like, yeah. And then Moscardini's like, okay, you need to find a way to get shot out of the cannon. Uh, I mean, he would just like, he wanted every story to be like, you've got to get in there and get in there deep. <laughs> this is great. Um, I, uh, we're, we're running out of time. I could talk to you all day, but we have uh, just about 45 seconds left. Tell folks where they can get this book. And, um, and you have an event at Tombolo. Tell us about that. Yes, thank you. So you can pre-order it now. It officially releases uh, November 14th. So if you go on tombelobooks.com now, you can pre-order it. You have to type in the name at the top, Stepping on the Blender. And then uh, I'm doing a reading and signing January 4th. I think it's at 7 p.m. at Tombolo. So in between uh, right after New Year's. Mark your calendars, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, thank you go so on, much. Go on Tombolo Books uh, and, uh, and, and, and order this wonderful read. Catherine Snow-Smith with uh, Stepping on the Blender and, uh, and Other Times. I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, I'm trying to get the subtitle. Life gets messy. Stepping on the Blender and Times Life Gets Messy. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone stay tuned for Art in Your Ear. And uh, we're signing off. The Skinny. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Take care.